Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is Session 3 of the Book of Hebrews, a new weekly podcast series. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself faithful to today, time after time. This third installment is entitled, Jesus is Better Than Moses, and it was recorded live at Sunday School on September 27, 2020. All right. Well, you know that we have been talking about the book of Hebrews, and I would like to remind you just a couple of quick things about it. It was written in 67 or 8 AD, probably, to Jewish Christians with the theme, Jesus is better than dot, dot, dot. And with each chapter, we compare Jesus to something that the Jews held dear, and he always comes out the winner. And the author may have been the Apostle Paul, but it doesn't seem to fit with the style of his other epistles. And so we're expecting that it could have been Apollos or someone that we don't even know. Chapter one, the message was, Jesus is better than the angels. And we went on to see all of these marvelous titles that he was given because he's God himself. And chapter two is, Jesus is better than the angels even though or because that he was made man. You tend to think of man being lower than the angels until you realize what happened for us when Jesus was willing to become man. So that takes us to chapter three. And today we're going to talk about how Jesus is better than Moses. So come with me to verse one and we'll start reading. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Now, they're touching on something near and dear to the heart of the Jew. Moses, he was the giver of the law and Judaism really became Judaism under Moses, and they held him in high esteem. So when we read that Jesus was faithful like Moses, you can expect that a Hebrew's ears are going to perk up and they're going to go, wow, oh, you mean even the great Moses? Jesus has been found worthy of a greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. This seems to need a little background. So I would like to remind you of why the Jews were so very interested in and why they so revered Moses. So let's go back and remember the circumstances of his birth. There had been a great famine in the infancy of the Jewish nation when they were still just a big family. And during that famine, the Jewish family, that was Jacob and his sons and their wives and their children had gone to Egypt to live 
because one of the brothers had already been taken down there, you remember, as a slave, and wonderfully by the hand of God had been promoted to second in command under Pharaoh and had been given advance notice by God that there was going to be this famine and he had saved up food. So when he was reunited with his family, they stayed in Egypt. But over the generations, they grew large and their size was threatening to the Egyptian people and Pharaoh enslaved them and they were slaves for generations. And it was miserable, grinding, backbreaking, degrading work. And so they cried out to God and he heard them and he was ready to deliver them and send them back to the land that he had promised their founder, who was Abraham. So during this time, their size had been so threatening to Pharaoh that he had called in the midwives and said, I want you to start drowning every baby boy that's born. Just kill them. You can let the daughters live, but we don't want any more male Jews. And so about this time, God blessed from the tribe of Levi, a couple whose names were Jochebed and Amram. The father was Amram. They had these two little children, Aaron and Miriam, a boy and a girl. And she's pregnant during this awful time when they're saying, if it's a boy, kill it. So you can imagine how stressful that would be. And with no way to know if it's a boy or girl before it's born, the whole pregnancy is just this one big, stressful, anxious, sad time. And so then she goes into labor and she gives birth. Maybe she was even afraid to call a midwife. And it's this beautiful little boy. And she does what she can to hide him. And so for three months, nothing is said. He is not kidnapped by uh, Egyptian militia that comes to his door, nothing like that. But he's getting bigger and he's getting louder and it's harder to hide that there's a baby in the house. And she finally decides that the only way for him to be saved, because eventually he is going to be discovered and they are going to kill him, would be if she takes him and puts him in a basket, you remember this story, and floats him out on the Nile where Pharaoh's daughter comes with her entourage of maidens to bathe. And so the older sister Miriam watched and they took the baby out there and set him in the basket. And sure enough, Pharaoh's daughter came out there to bathe and she's going down into the Nile and she sees something out there bobbing on the water and she says, what is that? Somebody go out there and get that. And they bring it up and they pull back the blanket and there's this precious little baby. And as soon as she pulls back the blanket, the Bible says the baby started to cry. Oh, it fills her heart with compassion. And the next thing you know, she's decided to adopt him. But he needs to nurse and they don't have bottles and they don't use cow's milk. And so Miriam comes up and she says, I know where you can get, where you can hire a nurse. Can I get a nurse for you? And she goes home and gets her mother and her mother is actually able to raise baby Moses until he's weaned. And so he knows where he comes from, but he's raised in palatial splendor in Pharaoh's house. And it is wonderful. So he grows up, though, and he identifies with the Jewish people. And by this time, they're just being treated awful. 
and he's out one day, and you can imagine that he's dressed so fine, like the grandson of Pharaoh that he is, and he sees an Egyptian who is acting terrible towards one of the slaves and beating on the guy. And so he's hearing the yelling and he's seeing the uproar and he's seeing the bloody stripes. And it makes him so angry that he does a vigilante killing. Remember that? He doesn't think anybody's looking. He looks this way and that way. You see him over on the right there. And then he steps in and kills the guy and buries him in a shallow grave. And the next day, somebody says to him, when he confronts a Jew about being harsh with another Jew during the workday, what are you going to do, kill me like you did that Egyptian yesterday? And he goes, oh, no, somebody did see. This thing is known. And he runs for his life. And he winds up on the backside of the desert and he stays out there for 40 years. That happened when Moses was 40 years old. He was still not married and he was living like the heir to the throne. And so now he's out on the desert. And while he's in the, in the Egyptian desert, he comes to an oasis or a well where they are watering camels and sheep and things. And he sees a couple of sisters who are being kind of, uh, discriminated against because they're women. They're trying to water their sheep and the guys are treating them roughly and, and kind of butting in in front of them and won't let them water their sheep. And Moses steps in again, gentleman and vigilante as he is, and he says, wait just a minute. You part out of the way and let these ladies water their sheep. And so they go home and tell their dad, and their dad says, good grief, why didn't you invite the man to dinner? And so they invite him to dinner, and the next thing you know, he's invited to live with them, and he marries one of the daughters. Her name was Zipporah, and she bore Moses a couple of sons. So his life has completely changed, and he's out there until he's 80 years old, content to be living a rural country life. One day he goes out and he's taking care of the sheep as always and he notices off out in the distance that there is a bush burning but it doesn't seem to be burned up. It's like you can see it in the flames and it's whole and it's unconsumed. And he thought, boy, that's odd. And he walks up to it and a voice speaks from the bush, take off your shoes for the ground is holy. And he's scared to death. And then the Lord calls him and says, I've heard the misery of the people and I'm going to deliver them. And I want you to go to Pharaoh and speak to him. And when Moses protests, the Lord allows him to bring his brother Aaron as his uh, spokesman or his um, helper. And then he also reveals his identity to Moses. I am that I am. So Moses really does go and say to Pharaoh, who remembers him from before, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I don't think so. And then the Lord begins to send one plague after another. And each time Pharaoh says, okay, okay, I get the picture. Please make the plague stop. We'll let the people go. And as soon as the misery abates, it starts back up 
Uh, he starts back up again with his, I will never let these people go. Finally, the last plague of all, the very worst one, is the firstborn in all of the families of the Egyptians dies. And Pharaoh finally, for real, lets the people go. But as they start off, you know that he changes his mind. And now the uh, Egyptians have trapped the Jews in behind the Red Sea. And so they've got water on one side and Egyptian army and Pharaoh on the other. And Moses stretches out the shepherd's staff that God has told him to use in the past, you know, by turning it into a serpent. And then he picks it back up again. He stretches out that serpent, that shepherd's staff, and the waters part, and the people go past on dry ground. We're supposed to be talking about Hebrews. Are you tracking with me here? They're really revering this great Moses. These are the stories that they've heard about him from the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. So he brings the people across the Red Sea and the Egyptians and Pharaoh are drowned as the sea comes back over where the dry ground was. And then he leads them along and he goes up on Mount Sinai and he's there for 40 days and God gives the law, including the Ten Commandments. And now the people have something to live by. The first four of those commandments are about our relationship with God. And the last six are about how we treat other people. Now you can understand why Jesus said that the whole law is summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And when Moses is up there in the mountain with God, he is so filled with God's presence that when he comes back, he's too shiny to look at. And he has to wear a veil for a few days while the marvelous splendor of that glorious encounter kind of fades. And then later, the priesthood is established and Moses anoints Aaron to be the high priest and they build the tent tabernacle in the wilderness and there's the Ark of the Covenant and all the other special furniture all around and the people look to Moses. And then when the people complain and are thirsty, God says, speak to a rock and then water will gush forth. But Moses is so distressed and so angry that he goes out there in front of the people and disobeys God and takes the staff and slaps the rock twice, strikes the rock twice. And yes, water does gush forth, but the Lord says, you disobeyed me in front of the people. And because of that, you won't go into the promised land. You'll see it, but you won't go in. Then something very interesting happened in Deuteronomy because this lesson isn't really supposed to be about the marvelous and great Moses that the Jews revere. Look what Moses wrote in his own law, Deuteronomy 18, 15, and then verses 17 and 18. Maybe we'll get back on our main subject and on our right track here. This is what Moses said. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers, you must listen to him. 
He's talking about the Christ there. And then he goes on, the Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone doesn't listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. One of the early prophecies about Jesus likened him to Moses. So then Moses gets to the end of his life and he's now 120 years old because he started that job of shepherding the Israelites across when he was only 80, but they sinned and they disobeyed and they disbelieved God. And God said, okay, you can stay out here for 40 years. Now Moses is 120 and yet he's still strong like a young man and he's getting ready to die. But the Lord calls him up into the mountain uh, in Moab and he goes up in the mountain and the Lord says, look all around. It's like a 360 degree view. And he says, this is the land that I promised that I am giving to the descendants of Abraham. And then the Bible says that Moses passed away and the Lord buried him. But I want to show you something else he said. Or that his successor Joshua wrote in Deuteronomy. Since then... No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Now think about this. This is Jewish law. So if you go to synagogue on Saturday morning and you're sitting in service and they take out Torah and they unroll the scroll and they find the place to read, some Saturday mornings this might be on the selection. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Now are you starting to see why it might be necessary for an entire chapter of the book of Hebrews to be about Jesus is better than Moses? I mean, the Jews had Moses way up here, and they knew what God's word said about him. They weren't idolizing him. God's word said that there was never greater. Oh, but what was it God's word also said? I will raise up for them a prophet like you among their brothers. In other words, the Messiah is coming. Okay, so maybe we do need a little bit more instruction on this. So I already read you the first six verses of Hebrews, but let's just review it briefly in light of all that. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. What? Oh, wait a minute. I was a Jew and I love the law. And I remember what King David said in Psalm 119 about the law. Oh, but you're wanting me to focus on this Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, okay. So I need to kind of regroup here and begin to put him in the center of my thoughts. 
the apostle and high priest whom we confess, he was faithful to the one who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Well, in light of what we just looked at about Moses' life, that'd kind of knock your hat in the creek, wouldn't it? Just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope which we boast. Okay, well, let's have a real good look at these two wonderful analogies that the writer of Hebrews has given to us here. The first one was Moses was a great house, but Jesus is the architect of the house. Here is a famous architect. His name is Norman Foster. He was born in the 1800s and he is British. I can't remember the exact year he passed away. I should have looked that up. But if you look at some of the marvelous structures that he has designed that are iconic over the years, you look at those and you think, wow, isn't that interesting? Isn't that creative? Isn't that innovative? Look at the, the marvelous angles or uh, how he did different things with materials and, and broke new ground. And you start focusing on the house and you go, wow, beautiful, love it, cool. And then when you put the architect beside the house, you realize that really all the credit and the honor belongs to the architect, not the house. Can you believe that all of this came out of that guy's head? That's pretty cool. And so we go back to that analogy. Moses was a great house. Yes, it was right and proper that the Jews looked up to him and that they appreciated what he did and that they read the words that he wrote because they came from God. But you know what? Jesus Christ is the architect of that house. In other words, if you're impressed with Moses, then you'll really be impressed with the one who created Moses, and that was Christ. The second analogy was Moses was a great house servant, but Jesus is the owner's son in charge of it all. So that contrast also helps us to see that although it's not wrong to hold Moses in high esteem, goodness, he's just the head servant, and Jesus is the son of the owner. He's the heir apparent of all things. So let's start with verse 7. This chapter 3 has 19 verses and keep going here. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me for 40 years and saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray and they've not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter 
my rest. Okay, he's quoting from the Psalms there, Psalm 95. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at the first. As has just been said, okay, he's going to go back and quote it again because it's so important and central to his thought. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Okay, what is he talking about there? We have to go back to Torah and the age of Moses again to Numbers chapter 14. So it's been months and months, but this group of maybe 2 million people, because we know there were some 600,000 men, have made it across the desert almost to the promised land, and they're anticipating going in. And so Moses selects one man from each of the 12 tribes, and he says to them, we need you to do a scouting operation. So the 12 of you go into the land of Canaan and find out who lives there and the nature of their culture and the buildings that they have built and everything so we'll know what we're up against. So these guys go and they're gone for a few weeks and they come back and they give their report and they bring back some of the marvelous abundance of the land. In fact, the scripture tells us that they had a cluster of grapes that was so gigantic that it took two men to carry them. They hung the grapes on a rod or a stick, and they each one supported the stick on a shoulder to walk all of that distance back to the wilderness. And they told the people, yeah, it is a land that flows with milk and honey, but there are giants in the land, and we looked like grasshoppers to them, and if you think that we're going to be able to defeat them, you've lost your mind. There's no way. And the people began to rebel, and they started to cry, and they started to complain against Moses, and in fact, they said, why don't we find us another leader? We're going back to Egypt. They did not believe that the Lord would really help them to conquer the land. So let me give you a taste of the sad awfulness of this by reading a piece of Numbers 14. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we died in Egypt or in this desert. Can you imagine how disrespectful to God that is? Egypt was awful. They were being worked to death, and they were living in slavery. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? What? This is the same God that was feeding them by manna every single day and that made water gush from a rock, and that sent quail when they wanted meat. This was the same God that helped Joshua defeat the enemy while Moses was on the mountain with his hands raised, and it took Aaron and Hur to hold up his hands the whole time, and they were able to defeat their enemies even when they were attacked a couple different times in the wilderness. 
but they don't think he's able to help them when they go to the promised land? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. How dare they say that about the children of the God that parted the Red Sea right there in front of them? And it wasn't that long ago. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then you get to verse 23. And this is what God said about that faithlessness. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. Wow, that's a harsh punishment. And you go on to verse 29, and it says, In this desert, your bodies will fall, every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. They were the only two of those 12 spies that came back with a faith-filled and positive report. You see, that's what the wilderness looks like. There's not much out there. It's a pretty depressing place to be consigned to for 40 years. You can't farm it. There aren't any buildings, no infrastructure at all, no communities, no water. It's just desert. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I'll bring them in to enjoy the land you've rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. The Jews knew that. That's a big story in Numbers 14. 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land. And so they did stay there all of that time until that generation had died off. So the writer of Hebrews is going to depend on them to remember that when he goes on to say in verse 16, who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they weren't able to enter because of their unbelief. And that's how the chapter ends. So what is he saying to us again? Wow, we better be really careful Yes, Jesus is better than Moses. And speaking of Moses, Moses was over a people that rebelled and were rejected by God. You know, when you think about it, what sin sends a person to hell? You could probably think of a list of 250 awful things that people could do that would separate them from God. And you might think those are the sins that send people to hell. But since Jesus has provided for our salvation, and his blood washes over all of those sins. The only sin that actually could send a person to hell now would be unbelief, right? If you reject him because you don't believe he can do what he says or that he is who he is, then that is what will send a person to hell. And so what was the bottom line of Hebrews 3 again? Jesus is better than Moses. 
and beware of the unbelief of Moses' people. And aren't we so very fortunate if the Jews had Moses in the Old Testament, as great as he was, to now have not just the head servant, but to have the son of the owner as the one we fix our eyes on. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, pass it along. 